This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, host of Climate One from the Commonwealth Club, and our guest today is Hank Paulson, former U.S. Secretary of the Treasury. He's the author of a new book, Dealing with China, an insider unmasks the new economic superpower. As China's economic reforms started gaining speed in the 1990s, Hank Paulson made dozens of trips to the Middle Kingdom of CEO of Goldman Sachs. China's media in those days often derided capitalists as running dogs, but the country's top leaders are pragmatists, and they often welcomed him into the inner compound where they run the country. He managed to establish trust and relationships that carried forward until he became President Bush's Treasury Secretary and led U.S. policy toward China. Over the next hour, we will talk about China's economic prowess and its political and environmental challenges. We will also talk about what the U.S. and China can do to reduce the economic risks of human-made climate disruption. We will include questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Hank Paulson is a businessman, China expert, conservationist, and author. He's the founder and chairman of the Paulson Institute and the Risky Business Project with Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg. He served as Secretary of the Treasury under President George W. Bush from 2006 to 2009. He previously had a 32-year career at Goldman Sachs, rising to become chairman and CEO in 1999. Please welcome him to Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you all. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for coming, Secretary. Um, I'd like to begin with PetroChina. You write that oil had a special place in China's psyche. Getting China's national oil company to market was one of the most difficult deals you did at Goldman Sachs. And China, PetroChina was one of these state-owned enterprises where they're really not like a company, they're like a city-state with schools and police forces. Yeah. So tell us about that deal and how it, what it meant in the broader sense of China's economy. Well, well, well Greg, uh, thank you. So the, the first part of dealing with China is a story of capital markets transactions being used by the Chinese leaders as a lever to attract Western know-how and markets to help reform the uh, country. And um, we'd done a couple, uh, we'd done a landmark transaction earlier for China Mobile. And, but, but the PetroChina deal, as Greg said, uh, one of my colleagues had described it as a medieval city, and he said, you can't float that on the New York Stock Exchange. And <laughs> when you looked at this, this was a company with uh, with a million and a half people, but there were there, there was also with the family members it supported six million, and it had a company, you know, uh, hospitals, stores, uh, dormitories, uh, restaurants. Um, so it was it was in many ways like a city, and the um, the. And it took a lot of courage for the uh, for the premier at the time, Zhu Anji, and, and those that were working with him to, to do this because 
you know, to, to, to put it in context, BP, British Petroleum at the time, which was a cornerstone investor in this company as part of the deal, had about 80 or 90,000 people. And, you know, and, and PetroChina, when it went public, had about 485,000. But it was, but there were all sorts of people that were, that were put out of work, and it created a lot of social stress. But it was an important part of the reform and bringing capital markets to China. And some of those people uh, that were out of work came back later and said, look, hey, we're, we're the, our, our uh, bios ran out. And, and one other company, you write, Sinopec, put 200,000 workers back and, 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 uh, and uh, increased their pensions. And you write that China doesn't really have an effective safety net, that, that that's a problem. They, they, they really don't. The, uh, the, the, the country re- relied on you know, filial piety, the... You know the the, the 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 children, the son, uh, you know, supporting the parents, and that was a very that's been a very important tradition. And part of the reason today that they that they oversave is they don't have the uh, adequate safety nets. But that's something that that the leaders are very much focused on uh, in developing. You wrote a, an article in the New York Times last year where you, on, on climate change, you said it presents risks to the economy and the environment. You said you feel like you're, we're flying into a mountain in slow motion. We can see the crash coming, but we're sitting on our chance and not changing course. Why aren't we changing course? Oh, so now, uh, well, well, climate change, I think, is a very difficult issue to deal with. It is... You know, I think the biggest risk, not just to the global ecosystem and the environment, it's the biggest economic risk we face. But we tend to deal with issues uh, nationally when there's an immediate crisis rather than there's a longer-term issue. And the terrible thing about, uh, about the, the, the climate change risk is that carbon emissions essentially, for all practical purposes, stay up there forever. So it's cumulative. So it, the financial crisis, as bad as it was, the government can come in at the end and do things that avoid the worst outcomes. The longer you wait here, you know, the, 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 the more costly and, and, and the more difficult it's going to be to avoid the worst outcomes. And also, we tend to deal with issues if we handle them at the national level better than the global so here we've got the double whammy. It's, so it's, it's difficult uh, politically, but that's the bad news. The good news is I, I think we, we still have time to act to avoid the worst outcomes. And as public sentiment changes, you, know, you have to be optimistic that we can get there because the technologies do exist today even. And so there's, there's a lot that can be done, and it's just... This is, this is a matter of generational equity. You, uh, one of the biggest things that happened in climate recently is, is a U.S.-China deal. Uh, you know, the U.S.-China have agreed to work together on, on climate change. You believe those, the two largest economies, you can't solve climate without U.S. and China. What's the significance of that deal? Well, again, to, to put this in perspective, one of the reasons I wrote Dealing with China the reason that I spend so much time there, the reason that the Paulson Institute is focused there, is I believe that this is the most important uh, bilateral relationship we have I- I- in the world. And it's increasingly difficult 
and because they're increasingly a competitor. But if you look at the major, major issues there are in the world today, uh, most of them are easier solved if we're working together, much more difficult if we're not. And so we're partnering with them in some things and working, you know, competing in others. Now, a great example is climate change, because there it is impossible to avoid the worst outcomes if major developing countries, and particularly China, the largest emitters of greenhouse gases, aren't, you know, uh, taking the necessary actions. And they, more than any other of the developing nations, understand the problem and are, are, are committed. And so I think that agreement was very important for two reasons. First, it demonstrates that they see the U.S. relationship as very important, or they wouldn't have announced that right there with President Obama. And secondly, it is a major breakthrough. It is very historic. It, 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 I think it creates a opportunity to get much more done at Paris and beyond, and uh, it's a sign that you know China doesn't make an announcement like that and something publicly if they're not serious about dealing with the problem. And China's regime stays in power by increasing the living standards and material income of its people. Can they do that without fossil fuels or with fewer fossil fuels? Well, let me, let me, there's sort of two things rolled into that question. First of all, the Chinese, if you would look at the issues that the Chinese leaders are confronting today, Right there, right after corruption, the, the area that the people care the most about are the dirty air and, and, and the pollution. There's property rights. There's, a, there's other issues that they care a lot about, but that is huge. And so the air quality, it, particularly in the Beijing, Urbay, Tianjin area, but in the whole coastal area is so bad, and it is getting worse. It's, you know, life expectancy is, is less. The leaders are focused on that big time. And they also, and many of the things they need to do to solve that also make a big difference in climate. And they are focused on, on climate. So your question is, can you balance economic growth with, with, with doing the right thing environmentally? You know, and I have always believed that the two go together. You're, no growth is going to be sustainable. No prosperity is going to be sustainable if we don't uh, if we don't have a clean, healthy environment. And unless you have a certain amount of economic success, it's going to be hard to have the ability to do the things you need to do. So these are the opposite sides of the same coin, rather than being uh, in conflict. And. I believe this is increasingly understood in China. This is one of the cases the Paulson Institute is making. But the, the, the thing that I would cite, Greg, is those of you who, who have gone to China for a long time know that when you meet, traditionally when you've met with local officials, mayors, governors, they would recite their economic statistics. They would talk about GDP growth, jobs, et cetera. Because to get ahead, you grew the economy, created jobs, avoided a big scandal, minimized social unrest, and you were, you were on your way up. Uh, today, they, they know that's not the game. So when you talk to them, they are giving you 
the statistics also on air quality. And I was in, you know, sometime in late March, I was in Urbay, which is ground zero of dirty air, of the 73 provinces that rank last, but they're all ranked. And so on the one hand, when you looked at all of the pollution and looked at their their geographical disadvantages are in a, in a, in a valley where, there's, where there, there's not much wind. And I looked there, and I, you know, I could hardly see the sky. And I said, oh, you know, holy cow. And yet they're, they're citing statistics that it's 12% better than it was last year. <laughs> well, at least they're, they're, they're focused on it, you know. And, and I didn't, it, it, on the one hand, it's funny, but on the other hand, it, it, it was really, it, it was important for me, that's what all of the presentations were about. They're looking for help. That's why the Paulson Institute is focused with, you know, the, uh, on this project, the president, the president and general party secretary, Xi Jinping, is, is focused on the coming up with a plan for this mega metropolis, you know, these three large cities to... Uh, clean the air and, and reduce carbon emissions and be more energy efficient. China's brought 300 million people out of poverty into the middle class. There's another 300 million behind that, and they largely will live in cities. Uh, what's at stake with China's urbanization? Why should we care? Well, oh, oh boy. So, that's, so this is probably where I should have started out with context for people here. You're talking about the second largest economy in the world, and it's on track in the not-too-distant future to knock us off the perch we've had for 150 years as the largest economy. Now, it still will have, as you pointed out, income or GDP per capita well below the U.S., and they've got you know many, many poor, poor people. So th- this country produces and consumes half of the cement, half of the steel, half of the coal. Half of all new buildings on Earth go up in, in China. And they need a new economic model, and they need a new urbanization model. So I think one of the biggest economic events in China and around the world will be the next 300 million people. That's the size of the United States of America going to the cities. And the urbanization model they have right now doesn't work. They know it. They've built, they built cities for people, for cars, excuse me, not people. They've got these, you know... Eight-lane highways, they've got these big, huge blocks. The cities used to be livable for the people. You would go through these to, to these urban areas and, you know, the hutongs mm. in, in Beijing, and they just were neat little neighborhoods. But there's great social stress, too, with the people. You know, there's, there's you know, these the cities have brought people out of poverty, but have created social stresses. So again, this is an area that's very important. That's another area the Paulson Institute is working on. We, we have programs on sustainable urbanization. We give awards for cities of the future, but we have a, a U.S.-China uh, CEO urbanization council where we have very big U.S. companies and companies, you know, like General Motors and and, and IBM and, and Apple and Honeywell and, and, and Dow and, 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 and big Chinese companies like Alibaba and the State Grid and others. And again, 
you know, the, the bad news is this is a country that's addicted to coal. You know, s- s- almost 70% of the fuel mix is domestic coal. The good news is there's some easy wins. As I said, we half of all new buildings going up are going up in China. 40% of carbon emissions come from buildings. They've got terrible practices in terms of energy-efficient buildings. So we can do work with, with, with people like Lawrence Berkeley Labs out here and Rocky Mountain Institute. And, and there's a lot that can be done in terms of building codes and building practices. And the cleanest, cheapest energy there is is energy you don't use. So there's big, big opportunities in energy efficiency. Income inequality is also a big concern among, in China that vast wealth has, has been created. Uh, do you think that a, a child born into poverty today has greater upward social and economic mobility in China or the U.S.? Well, I, I, I believe that there's still greater opportunity in, in the U.S. by a lot. Uh, but we have some, Greg, some things we need to do. Uh, we have some flawed policies we need to fix. It, it, so I'm not making light of income disparity in the U.S. It's, it's a problem. My first speech as Treasury Secretary was, was about that problem in, in 2006. And, but as I look at the world, and I'll get to China in a minute, but as I look at the world, that the world is changing and there's uh, things that are going on. The digital revolution, people out here uh, understand that, and, and technology, and, and it's, it's progress, but it, it is, whether it's in the U.S. or China, it is carving out big parts of all sorts of, uh, of industries, you know, and, and whether it's anything that can be routinized, whether it's engineering, architecture, law, manufacturing plants, you don't see people very much, you see robotics. And so with us, I think we need to do things, update our policies, and we need immigration reform where we really don't send the best and brightest foreign students back that are job creators, and we need new tax policies for corporations and individuals, and we need entitlement reforms, and we need much more in the way of education and training by far for the jobs of the future. Now, China... When you look at, at, at their problem, it is, it is a problem of, of an economic model that has run out of steam. Reforms had stalled. It took hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. But right now, they have flawed policies that need to be fixed. They have a flawed municipal finance system that is partly responsible for the urban sprawl because mayors and governors don't have the funds they need. So if they need land, if they need money, they take someone's land below market prices and sell it to developers. So you get sprawl. They don't have annual property taxes. They have big one-time taxes when property is sold. So they've, and, and they've been driving growth by investing and over-investing in infrastructure and so municipal debt has been rising at, at, at an alarming rate. Now, they understand that, but they need to, to fix their policies. And there's a lot they need to do to, to spread the income more broadly. There's, you know, the, China's got the second largest number of billionaires, but there are people still living in, in, in abject poverty. And so 
the key there is also is opening up more sectors of the economy to competition, to the private sector, which accounts for 70% of the jobs in China. But there's these big state-owned sectors right now that get all these special advantages. And there's a misconception, Greg, that because there's an authoritarian government, they can just give an order and get these things done. Mm. And you know, I, I, I refer to that as just ask the emperor. People say to me, well, you know President Xi Jinping. Why don't you suggest this or that? You know, and, and so it's very hard. He's got this very hugely ambitious reform program for all parts of society, but there's vested interests. And so there is not a consensus to get a lot of things done he needs to get done. So it's going to be difficult and take time. And his key and his ability to get those things done is going to have a lot to do about the opportunity for someone, a, a, a child that's born in China today. But trust me, they have even... You talk about the problems we have today for college-educated uh, kids that don't find the right jobs. They have the largest group of college-educated students that's many of whom are struggling to find the kind of jobs they'd like to find. If you're just joining us, our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is former Secretary of the Treasury Hank Paulson, author of the new book, Dealing with China. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, you mentioned President Xi Jinping. Uh, you write that corruption uh, eats about 3 to 5% of the Chinese economy. The president has embarked on a big uh, anti-corruption campaign. Some people think it's a power grab. What do you think it is? Well, let me put this in perspective for, for people here. Because this is a man who has set out this really, really ambitious plan to reform the country. Not just economic reform, not just a new urbanization model, but, you know, change the foreign policy, military, the, the relationship between the, 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 the central government and the provinces, you know, uh, modernizing a legal system. It just goes on and on. Without the rule of law, uh, as we know it, or a legal system you can count on. And so he's looking to do this through the party. And he sees the party as a source of stability and the institution is strong enough to get things done. And this is a party that is rife with corruption. And the people are angry about this. And so he is he, the anti-corruption campaign is huge. It's hard to understand it if you're just reading about it. There have been... So far, a quarter of a million party members that have been punished. There have been uh, over 70 of ministerial rank. People are quaking in fear. And so th this, I, I think, I believe the primary purpose is to curb the pro corruption. But also it's a tool in the toolkit because he's, he has amassed power quicker than uh, you'd have to go back to... to, to Mao to maybe find a leader that had amassed power so quickly. Right. And so when you're looking to go after corrupt officials, you know, I would certainly suspect that when he goes after those and the sort of this, the state-owned pillars of the economy that are you know, vested interests that are resisting reform, it's, it's a tool in the toolkit to, to help drive reforms. But I, I think people make a mistake if they say, well, 
it's just a purge. He's not going after corruption. He's, he's been very clear in saying the Communist Party will not survive unless they go through this self-rectification and, and that they really curb this. But this will be, this can only be one part of it because the, the root causes are systemic and they understand it. And it requires them a much longer period of time and other reforms to, to, to really make a huge difference. When you were uh, Secretary of Treasury in the Bush administration, you were a lead on U.S.-China relations, and that relationship has gone through ups and downs. There's been uh, friend and foe. Lately, uh, we've learned about Chinese military hacking into the U.S., the Chinese trying to steal U.S. intellectual property. There's some aggression in the North China Sea. There's some tension in the South China Sea with air, uh, airstrips. Uh, so how do you characterize the relationship now? Is it friend or foe, or is it a bit of both? It, 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 it is. And the, here, here's the right way to think about China. China is, this relationship is changing as China has emerged and to a, you know, a, a, a much greater global power. Uh, and so it's a as I said, a formidable competitor. And uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, we have many common interests. And so the key thing is to manage this relationship so we're doing things. They're going to act in their interest. We need to act in our interest. And we need to find areas where where we have common interests and then just finding those is not enough. We need to get difficult, important things done so that both publics see the value of, of, of that relationship. There's nothing wrong with competition. We shouldn't be afraid of competition. China has far more problems than we do. We're going to be the predominant force in the world for a long time if we fix our problems. And if we don't, we won't be. And um, But... What we need to do is we need to uh, manage the the competition and the cooperation so that the competition is not debilitating competition. And the danger, I mean, I, you know, I dedicated, Greg, this book to my grandchildren because I want them to grow up in a safe, healthy, environmentally healthy, prosperous world. And... The odds of that happening are much greater if, if, if we're managing the relationship with China in the, in, 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 the, in the proper way. So, But we need to be very strategic about this. And if, if you want me to talk about some of the issues like cyber hacking or the South China Sea, I'm happy to do that. But I just meant that there's, there's these tension points, and it's obviously oh. a complicated relationship, and one of them is, is human rights, often at the center of, of right. U.S.-China relations. You uh, helped secure the release of Yang Jianli, a, a human rights activist there. Uh, so some people say that human rights gets underplayed or overplayed in the relationship. Well, it is. So let me talk a little bit about about human human rights and uh, that I, I would just simply say when I when you talk to many in China, they will say our most basic important human rights are the things that the leaders are working on, which is you know clean air. Let's deal with property rights. Let's deal with food safety. 
Let's deal with the income disparity. Let's give us the kinds of pensions we need. Let's deal with the household registration. You've effectively ended the one-child policy, etc. But at the same time, this is an administration that is, at the same time, they're looking to free up the, um, the economy. They are tightening up all their controls and uh, on uh, you know, media. political ideology, media, and they take a very hard line on anyone that they see undermining the authority of the party. So I will, so human rights, Americans have always got to speak out for human rights, and we've got to speak out publicly for human rights. But oftentimes, if you want to get someone released, the best way to do it is, is, is not to be lecturing publicly. But I, I, I tell the story in uh, dealing with China, and this took place... There's a chapter dedicated to the financial crisis looked at, you know, through the U.S.-China relationship. And we had a very constructive relationship, which was positive and very helpful. But I tell the story that in August of 2008, which wasn't a very happy time for me, and I can't think of, I can't think of very many happy days during that six-month period, but there was one day shortly before I had to act on Fannie and Freddie, which was a bright spot because Yang Yang Li, who was a, a you know a, a pro democracy activist, uh, came to see me with his wife and two small children, to thank me for securing his release. And the interesting thing about that was he thanked me for two things. He thanked me for securing his release, but for the work I'd been doing on the environment in China going back for a number of years, you know, he, he, we talked about the parks in Yunnan, and I have a, a, a chapter in the book, Safe Savings, Shangri-La, which talks about the, the, the conservation work. So he thanked me about that. And then I thought back on how and when I'd done this, which had been a year earlier, and Barney Frank had asked me to, to see what I could do because Yang Yang Lee's family lived in Massachusetts, and I had just come back from the Qinghai province. I was at the Tibetan Plateau, and I was there to, to really witness firsthand what climate change was doing and the temperature, you know, the glaciers were melting and, and the temperature was rising so quickly. And I, when I came back and met with the leaders, it, the, 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 the same leaders that he was, you know, protesting against also thanked me for visiting that area and for the work I had done on the environment. So a lot of this is the strategic economic dialogue was working on economic issues, and it was, a, it was a mechanism we put in place to make progress on economic issues, but it was economic issues writ very broadly and defined those as energy and the environmental issues, and we were putting in place the 10-year framework on energy and the environment then which was a good cornerstone that really, I think, was helped uh, the Obama administration, which has you know, kept a derivative of the strategic economic dialogue, you know, do this climate deal. But my view is if you get the economic issues right and you have common ground there, other issues are easier to, to do and get done. So I felt that the SED was a... <clears throat> Although it was, it, it focused on economic issues. It gave us a big umbrella to, to deal with something like, like uh, Yang Yang Lee. And, and to me, I've, I've got no end of respect uh, 
for people that care deeply about issues like he does and are willing to take the kinds of risks that he, he, he took. So I'm, I, I work on environmental and economic issues, uh, but I have just great admiration for people like Yang Yang Lee. Well, some people would say environmental issues are human rights issues. If you're just... You, you bet. I mean, I, I think that's why we... When, I say to, when people say to me, why aren't we... Why are we working with China when we disagree with where they are on human rights? But we are a big country, and we have not a single-dimensional policy. We have, we have a number of policies that are very important. And I view economic issues, I view environmental issues. Uh, you know, there's a whole set of issues that are human rights issues. And you have to acknowledge that in the time I've been going to China, the living conditions, the lifestyles, the basic rights that the Chinese have in, in terms of traveling internally, externally, have, have just improved dramatically. I lived in China in the late 80s. You go back now, and there's no doubt people are better off, better fed. They're generally happier. If you're just joining us, our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is Hank Paulson, former U.S. Secretary of the Treasury and author of the new book, Dealing with China. I'm Greg Dalton, host of Climate One. Uh, we've come to the time for a, a bit of a lightning round to have some fun and pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, the first question... Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, anyone who's been to China knows that uh, you've certainly spent a lot of time at banquets where there's Mao Tai served, and Mao Tai is a, is a drink that's somewhere between kerosene and gasoline. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, my question is, uh, the number, th these are some, ask you some questions uh, with numbers answers. The number of times you got really drunk on Mao Tai uh, was between like around 100 or 1,000? Zero. Zero. I am, I, I'm a teetotaler and I've never even tasted it. And it's pretty tough to get deals done well, without smoking a cigarette I would, I would, and having would, a drink with those guys. I will tell you, guys. I know this is, this, this is a lightning round, but this will be interesting <laughs> because it, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Because there's all this, th these strong feelings about what it takes to do business in China. All the ceremony, going out and drinking, etc. At the end of the day, when you get to know the Chinese people, they got a different culture, a different history, different traditions, but they are got senses of humor like ours, and they appreciate authenticity, and they're good hosts. So once I, I started off in the early days... I, you know, I, I put tea in my glass and I drank tea or water. And there was only one official that just insisted on drinking. I never really liked him very much. But I had a designated drinker. So this, this little Chinese woman who, who, was, who was just tremendous and worked with me, Xiuming Wang, who was, you know, about five foot four, well, she was my designated drinker, and that was everywhere. But with everyone else, they learned very quickly. And so they, we don't do the entertainment and the drinking. And I, you know, I'm a Christian scientist. I don't drink, and, you know, I've never tasted Mao Tai, and I'm glad I haven't. Uh, the number of times you were hit up for bribes in China, 1,000, 10,000? Uh, uh, almost none, because we had a great protection. I was first of all, the senior person, um, and second, there was, we had the Foreign Crop Practice Act protection, so they wanted to do business with the major U.S. investment banks, and I dealt at senior government levels. 
So I, I've got no stories uh, about that. Our, our people would occasionally. Yeah, I bet. Uh, um, anyone in China does. Um, number of times Chinese leaders had long johns sticking out their suit legs uh, at important meetings discussing matters of state. Many times in the old days. Many times. I mean, you'd go into rooms, you'd be freezing in there, you know. But, uh, you know, their, their energy efficiency in those days. <laughs> Next ones are some from, from your previous life outside of China. Uh, the number of U.S. executives who went to jail for causing the Great Recession. Yeah. The, the, I don't know, but I, I'm not sure how many U.S. executives caused the Great Recession. Maybe they would have gone to jail if they had. So they, they participated in it. But the flawed government policies were the root cause of the Great Recession, in my view. I know that's not popular with people, but... I, I believe, I'm one that believe if U.S. executives had broken the law, they would have gone to jail because there sure were a lot of people trying to put them in jail. So, so that's, maybe, maybe the problem was what, what was legal. Um, but that's yeah, that's big, right. I think, um, I think there's a big difference between what's right and what's legal. And there was a lot of wrong behavior. And if you ask me the number of U.S. executives that had wrong behavior, I would say I can't count it. It's so many. Okay. But don't forget that the root cause of financial crises in every country are at the bottom are flawed government policies. And we could spend a lot. So that there was great misbehavior. Uh, former Citibank chairman Sandy Weil has said that commercial banks and investment banks should be split, effectively returning Glass-Steagall. Do you agree or disagree with Sandy Weil? I, I, I think that's very interesting revisionist history to the guy who, you know, who created, the, <laughs> created this unmanageable monster. But I, I, I frankly think, given where, we are, given where we are today, I don't know how you unscramble the egg, and I think uh, we're approaching it the right way in terms of w w with the regulation and the capital. Some U.S. banks are still too big to fail. Uh, I believe that in a middle of a financial crisis, almost any big institution is too big to liquidate immediately without hurting the American people. But the, 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 the bad thing is to prop them up in their current form. And so today, the reason I'm taking a while to answer this is I, it's not a yes or no question. So today we have the tools so that you can wind down a non-bank, which, which we didn't have. You can wind down a non-bank and do it in a way in which you don't hurt the American people. But I don't want people to think that we've, that, that right now that, there's, there are many banks, in my judgment, many banks, if, there are, if there's a severe crisis, will, are too big to liquidate immediately. You just can't do it without hurting people. Kat Taylor is a Harvard overseer, and she thinks that uh, Harvard should divest from fossil fuels. Is that a good move? Uh, you went to Harvard that, that's, that's a that's a, that, that's a much more difficult question. I used to always believe, you know, when I'd sit there and look at students demonstrating and wanting to divest from this or that, I thought often they were students that were there on scholarships and, and they were going there because the, the, the endowment needed to be invested to make a return. And so I, 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 I pose this and I pose, but I have to admit 
that, uh, that today I feel so strongly about this issue, one of the things I really find is a bright spot is young people care. This is a generational issue. They care so much about this. And so I love the fact that they're pushing for it. And I haven't studied how easy it would be. It would be easy for me to divest from coal. Okay. That would be... It's a bad investment. That would be the first step. That would be the first step because I think it's a bad investment. The other thing which which I feel very strongly about, which comes out of risky business, is I think the SEC should be forcing disclosures so that everyone would understand the risks, uh, you know, the climate change risks. And to me, that goes beyond fossil fuels. And it goes, it, it goes to stranded assets, uh, companies building plants in the wrong places, building them, you know, in, in the coastal areas and, and, you know, rebuilding New Orleans so you can flood it again, that kind of thing. The, uh, so I... I happen to think that those kinds of risks should be should be disclosed, and if they're disclosed, then I think that goes a long way to solving the issue rather than dictating what a what an endowment can invest in. So it sounds like you're entertaining the possibility of maybe divestment someday, or you want no, to study no, further. I, what, what I would say, and again, I haven't studied it. I would be if if someone. If I were running an endowment, I'd look very hard at divesting coal. To me, that would be a, 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 an easy thing. But I tell you, it's a, it's a slippery slope because why do we invest in tobacco stocks? Okay? So do you, why do you invest in liquor stocks? Gun okay? stocks. Yeah. You know, why do you invest in... So I, I would much rather uh, just see the risk disclosed. And I think some of these are very bad investments. I'd like to understand what the risks are with individual, uh, companies. And, and I think the climate risks or risks that should be disclosed. I would pro- probably not be favoring div- divestment, but though I love the fact that young people are demonstrating for this right now, you betcha, you know, that's great. And, and if I had to make the decision, you know, I'd probably make it with coal. If you're just joining us, our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is former Secretary of the Treasury Hank Paulson, author of the book Dealing with China. I'm Greg Dalton, host of Climate One. We'll be right back. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Recently, student activists have been pushing their colleges and universities to divest from fossil fuel stocks. Lisa Jackson is president for environmental affairs at Apple and a former head of the EPA. During a recent Climate One visit, one audience member asked Jackson if she would support divestiture at her alma mater, Tulane University. It's a really tough one, and I'll tell you why. Because it's personal for me. Um, I went to Tulane University on a Shell Oil Company scholarship. So I don't believe in being a hypocrite, and I don't believe in standing up and saying something that's easy and popular. If Tulane University or any university is going to start to make those decisions based on values, and certainly you've heard from me that climate to me is the most important value, not for everyone, I think I need to understand fully what that means for that university. If it was black and white, I would tell you, yes, absolutely, but if it wasn't for a Shell Oil Company money, I wouldn't be here. And I worked for Shell Oil Company every summer when I was in school. And I would not have a degree but for that. So these are systems issues, and um, 
it's hard for me from the background I have to just say, be done with it until I know which kids aren't going to get those scholarships. That was Lisa Jackson, Apple's president for environmental affairs and a board member at Tulane University. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guest, Hank Paulson, at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Secretary Paulson, I'd like to ask you about how you talk with Republicans and people on Wall Street about climate change. That's a very difficult conversation. Well, so I'm going to say something more broadly, and I'm this, I don't want to sound partisan, but I don't look at this being broken down by Republicans or Democrats. When I worked with clients, corporate clients, I sort of knew where they were going to be on different issues based upon where their, what their company was doing in the industry. When I look at senators or congressmen, if you tell me what their state is or what their district is, without even knowing them, I can almost tell you where they'll be on some of these issues. And it's not just Democrat versus Republican. Jay Rockefeller was a liberal Democrat. He ran for the first time in West Virginia and lost on environmental issues. And he was liberal on everything, but let me tell you where he was with coal when he was in there and where he was with climate. And when I was Treasury Secretary and I would go in and meet with various people, and they didn't know where I, they didn't know I was an environmentalist. So when I'd be talking with Democrats from a number of these states, they'd say, oh, yeah, don't worry, I'm speaking about this, but I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to go too far. You know, autos are in my state or coal or whatever. And so the early bill that the president was trying to get done, I was glad wasn't passed because when you look at all the special exceptions and the carve-outs for coal and so on, I almost thought it was worse than, than, than nothing. So I think what it really comes down to is how do you change the American people and get the American people where they need to be so the politicians fall in line. And again, I, I, I think the reason I like the risky business study is this was nonpartisan. So Tom Steyer, Bloomberg, and I chaired it, but George Schultz, you know, very respected Republican, Bob Rubin, uh, you know, Republican, you know, business people like Greg Page of Cargill, really uh, thoughtful people. And we didn't go at it in terms of here's the policy prescription. All we did was use the very best business analysis, the very best science, and then we drilled down. We could do it by, by county, by zip code, and you could say, what's the range of risks? What are the economic risks? And, uh, and when you had a conversation there, as Greg Page said, you started in the middle. You know, all sorts of deniers uh, suddenly became very interested. And it turns out many of them are very worried about climate change. But they're afraid if they say so, there's going to be an excuse for big government. And what you need to really help people understand is it's going to be just the opposite. If we, if we don't act on some of these things now, the government's going to play a bigger and a bigger role unnecessarily. Because every time there is an extreme weather event or an event that hits some industry, or where I don't care if it's a forest fire, a, a tornado, or a hurricane, a drought, whatever, the government comes in, that's the right role of government, it's expensive, we all pay, and that's a big fiscal cost. And so I, I do think we, 
we're, we're making progress here. And the idea of looking at it as an economic risk and saying, what's the cost of not acting? So start understanding that and, and looking at it as risk management. And, and so our, our motive there was to get, and a lot of cities have been taking that data and, and understanding it, and there's been a lot of good movement at, at, at the municipal level in this country and at the state level. And we want businesses to start understanding the risks, integrating it into their, to, to their decision-making process. We want them to start disclosing. I'd like them be, to be required. I'd like the SEC to enforce its rules. We got the data. And then I'd like businesses to lobby their political representatives. If you're just joining us today, we're talking at the Commonwealth Club with Hank Paulson, former Secretary of the Treasury, former CEO of Goldman Sachs, and author of the new book, Dealing with China. I'm Greg Dalton, host of Climate One. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what do Chinese believe? Some say um, China is a country with no religion, thus no moral compass. And my friends in the environmental field in China have either followed Tibetan Buddhism or have become Christians. So we'd love to hear your observation on the belief system of the political leaders and the younger generation. It's, it's interesting. I, I have a chapter in, in my book called The Party Line, and I talk a bit about that. And uh, because I found that young people, and I found that going back into the mid-'90s, are looking for things to believe in because, you know, what happened, you know, with, with Mao stamping out religion and, and, and it, it wasn't enough to just believe in economic development and getting rich. And so people, when I would ever mention prayer, there would get, I'd get a lot of questions. People didn't want to just rely on the feng shui men, you know, to, to, and, and so they... There's, so there's been a huge uh, uh, growth in belief systems. Uh, Christianity is, is the, perhaps the fastest growing uh, religion, but you, you've seen Buddhism, Confucianism, and uh, Xi Jinping, has, uh, pre- the president of China, has been emphasizing you know, the, the importance of traditional Chinese values and, and, and culture. And uh, so there's, there, there, there's just rapid growth right now. And so I, I don't think it, it's... It, I, I can say that Chinese believe this or that, but I just will tell you their belief is very important. And also there's a... It has been a resurgence of uh, ideology, too. And so that's... That's growing, but but religion is is really taking off in, in, in China and, and has been for a while. Let's have our next question for Secretary yes, Paulson. Uh, greetings, Mr. Secretary. I'm wondering if there's anything that the United States can learn from China to help improve our economy and our lifestyle. Yeah, well, I, there, there's there's plenty of things we can learn, and I would cite one in particular. These leaders are very, very pragmatic. So they look everywhere, they're problem solvers. So they look everywhere in the world for the best practices. 
and then they look to implement them. And the reason I go there regularly is they're very candid about their problems. We're not debating. Sometimes I feel in the U.S. I'm saying, you know, the sky is blue, and someone's saying, no, it's yellow, you know. In, 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 in China, they all know it's, it's very dark because of the pollution, but, <laughs> but, but, but they, they recognize that. And, and I, I tell, there's, there's a story I tell. There's a lot of stories in the book. The book is about stories. But I, I have a chapter entitled Skylines and Shorelines, which is about urbanization and then my work in, in, in terms of coastal mudflats and, and, and wetlands. And I'm telling the story about being in Chongqing, which is a, a very big, you know, the city proper, 7 million people, and meeting with the mayor, Wang Xifan. So he, he basically... In addition to talking about their issues, this was 2011, and he was concerned about the fiscal cliff in the U.S. And so he was asking me what I thought the answer was to increase our growth rate and and work down our unemployment. And so I said, what's your view? And he said, I frankly would go take a page from from Ronald Reagan. I like Reaganomics. He said, I believe, I think tax cuts may be the way to go. Well, I'm not sure I agreed with him, but I thought, isn't that, I can't imagine a U.S. mayor having been aware of what the Chinese problems were and having some views on how to fix them. So it's just, so that's, to me, the biggest positive is a practical, pragmatic leadership that recognizes that they've got problems and is going to look everywhere and move to, to, to solve them. Let's have our next question for Secretary Paulson at the Commonwealth Club. My question is, what are your views on the advisability of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that is now in gestation? I think it is essential, just essential, because our economic strength, everything needs to begin with our economic strength, and we need to lead economically. So I think it's essential because our administration has said we're going to do this. And we need to get this done in terms of our credibility all around the world if we want to keep our economic leadership. Secondly, I'm a big believer on the benefits of trade. I know they create dislocations, but I I believe they do more good for society and do more in terms of job creation than job losses. But even if you disagree with me on that and you don't like trade and don't think it's good, you should be for trade agreements because our markets are already open. We already are open to others. And so the idea of opening up other markets for U.S. workers and companies are essential. We've got 4% of the world's population. How can we be successful if we don't want to open, you know, access the other 96% and give American workers and, and, and businesses a chance to do that? So this is essential, and there's, there's, to me, it's the thing I'm focused on most right now and hoping that, 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 that the administration can negotiate this and Congress can pass it. Are environmental safeguards sufficient? There's some concern that, that these multilateral deals could trump national and state environmental regulations. Well, I, I would simply say I think the trade deal trumps. I think we can't rely on just environmental safeguards in these agreements. This agreement does more. When you, so again, when people ask about environmental safeguards, okay, this is additional. So the fact is, this is a breakthrough. When, when I uh, played a big role in negotiating some of the earlier 
trade agreements with Colombia, Peru, and so on. We were criticized, I was criticized for putting in, the, you know, the, agreeing to the first, you know, safeguards on the environment and labor. These go farther. Last question Let's go for Secretary Paulson at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, if you were a czar of uh, climate change, what would you do as far as some of the priorities and how would you do it? What would I do? If you were a czar of climate change, what would you do? Yeah, well, again, people always get me into this because, and, I, and, I, and the reason I hate to say it is because it is misunderstood by a lot of people. I would put a price on carbon. Right now, we do the opposite. We incentivize carbon production. So when people hear carbon tax, they get up in arms, and it's, it's counterproductive. And carbon tax means different things to different people. So the fact is... The question is, how do you put a price on it? How big is that price? And then what happens with the revenues? The revenues could all go back to the American people. The revenues could be used to, a big part of it, to go to lower income. There's a lot that could be done here. Tax is a dirty word among a lot of people. And so... I suggested that in a New York Times op-ed piece because as a Treasury Secretary, you can't write about the problem without saying, what would you do about it? But that draw, drew a lot of fire, and I think it's counterproductive to, to be pressing one solution over another right now. I think we've got to all agree that there's a big problem and then figure out what's the right way to do. I happen to think putting a price on carbon and, and setting up the proper incentives is a, would be a tremendous thing for our economy and for the American people if done properly. If you're just joining us, Hank Paulson is former Secretary of the Treasury, author of the new book, Dealing with China. I'm Greg Dalton. And as I've been sitting here the last hour, I've been thinking how the history of this century might have been different with you sitting in the cabinet room in the first four years of the Bush administration rather than the second administration. Let me tell you something. I'm saying saying this with a lot of humility. I think it was much more different than I was there in the second part of the administration because if you look at what the world might have looked like if we'd had our financial system gone down and economic Armageddon in this country we might not even be talking about things like climate change and, and, and so on. So I think I was there at the right time, and I'm grateful that I was there at the right time, and I'm grateful that you interviewed me today. Thank you, and thank you all. Thank you all for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.